Welcome to Say What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. In today's special bonus edition, we're taking a deep dive into the source of Bristol Bear Wild Salmon with my friend Amanda Vlasheski. Amanda owns two businesses, Nakeen Home Pack, based in Naknek, Alaska, and Quijack Fish Company, based in Montana. Amanda is also one of the core characters in my documentary, The Wild. And as you will be able to tell with this really great conversation, there is more to the source than just a commodity in the fish. There is something incredibly special about Bristol Bay. There's a reason that she chose this as her vocation. And there's a reason I've devoted my life to saving wild salmon and especially from Bristol Bay. Hope you enjoy the show today. And if you are following us and you're liking what you hear, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps out a bunch. And you can follow us on Instagram at Save What You Love Podcast. Thanks again. Enjoy the show. How do you say what you love when the world is burning down? How do you say what you love and bushes come to shove? How do you say what you love when things are upside down? Amanda Vlasheski, welcome. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, this is such a treat. I didn't know we were going to be able to do this this week, but given that we have this opportunity to screen the wild at Slow Fish and the fact that you and I got to hang out this week, um, which has been sporadic with COVID and busy lives, um, I'm just so grateful that you were able to come on the show and we get a chance to really dig in and talk for a while. Um, so I, you know, I'm going to talk for just a second because I know what kind of a humble person you are, and I'm just going to read a little something by way of introduction to you, to our audience, uh, from a recommendation that I wrote for you <laughs> for the James Beard foundation. Um, just to give folks a sense of who Amanda is and what kind of conversation we're going to talk about today. So are, are you, are you okay with that? Fire away. All right, here we go. So I'm writing today to offer my unequivocal support for Amanda Vlasheski as a candidate for the 2019 James Beard Foundation Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program. I've known Amanda since 2016. We met by way of Amanda's sister, Sharon, who introduced us thinking we had similar spirits and pursuits. Sharon was right. In 2017, I interviewed Amanda as a primary character for my documentary, The Wild. Amanda has built a woman-owned craft processing salmon business from the ground up and feeds the world the best, most sustainable animal protein available anywhere. She's excelled in a typically male-dominated industry for a few key reasons. She's honest, forthright, indefatigable, courageous, and works harder than just about anyone I've ever known. Oh, and she's brilliant. While navigating the travails of small business ownership in a remote location with negligible communication and often terrible weather, Amanda has been doggedly homing in on a PhD in anthropology from the University of Montana. Beyond all of this, more than anything, I admire Amanda for her heart. She's a kindred soul who sees the forest for the trees. She and I are uh, she and I and all who have been touched by the wild of Bristol Bay are connected by something far greater than ourselves, 
a land and a sacred creature that defines that land, wild salmon. These animals return with all the ocean's wealth inside them to feed 137 other creatures, including us, including the trees. Amanda has devoted her life's work to using every last breath and drop of sweat she can muster to keep Bristol Bay intact for future generations. So, dear listener, that's who we're dealing with here today. <laughs> oh, that's really nice, Mark. Well, hey, it's uh, it's motivated from uh, a friendship that has been rooted in something that is, again, far bigger than us. So um, I'm super, super glad to give a little intro here. And with that, I'm going to dig right into this, into the meat of the matter, as it were, and, and start with this. We both cut our teeth on what in Alaska is known as the slime line. Sure. Can you tell us your story and how you're, you found yourself called to Alaska and what the hell a slime line is anyways? Well, a slime line is, is just what it sounds like. You're in a line of other people and you are sliming fish one after another. Um, so the first time I came up to Alaska was with a group of friends from Montana who they had been coming up for generations. It was kind of a rite of passage after high school. Parents shipped you up to Alaska to work for co- through college. And mm-hmm. um, gosh, the first time I flew into Naknek, I don't even really remember it. Um, I'm so familiar with it now that I try to remember what it was like to see it the first time. But you truly, when you work at those canneries, you have tunnel vision. You show up, they show you to your bunk, they give you some gear, and then the next thing you know, you're on a concrete floor. Um, it's loud, it's wet, and it smells like fish, salt, bloody water. Um, you know, so it's new. It's like it's so overwhelming that you really don't have a chance to, um, you know, even think about why, why, what am I doing here? Um, you just get tossed right in, and. Um, that first summer, I think I, I learned with a lot of different um, kids that you you can work so much longer than you ever expected that you could if you have to, um, or if it means you're going home if you don't. So I think that is what most people walk away from the slime line with is this was hard. This was uh, disgusting, tedious, cold, wet, but I just did that for 16 hours. So... It's, I think that um, rewarding uh, and fun and just kind of totally different environment is what hooks a lot of people. You'd have to be, you'd have to love it to be able to do it. And the impetus for you was the, the, the rite of passage and the, the chance to earn some money. And was there any of that sort of wanderlust Alaskan adventure in that for you as well? Oh, definitely. There's, um, there's a lot of similarities between where I grew up in Montana and Alaska. It's just really connected to the outdoors. It's a little more wild west than your average big city. Um, but more, it was just the friendships. I mean, we may, we could have been processing donuts or chickens. It was, we didn't know what we were doing. It was so unfamiliar. It was the relationships and it was just kind of the 100% present. You were there, you were on the line. And you were just doing your job. And then, to be honest, your first summer up there, you don't see much outside of the cannery. I didn't even know Naknek existed outside of that campus. Um, 
But then when they cut us loose, we would rent a 15-passenger van out of Anchorage, go to the liquor store, unfortunately, (laughs) and just take off and go camping. And we really, um, you know, after six weeks of working like that nonstop, never in your life have you felt like you deserved just to cut loose and kick back with your friends and just really enjoy where we were. And, of course, where we were was just tremendously beautiful and something we hadn't seen before so it was a bit of both worlds yeah I, I, there's nothing like that feeling of um surrender and uh kicking back after working those just insane hours i have two small regrets from my time working on the slime line in uh and the freezer packing line mostly um in dillingham on the other side of bristol bay from where you were. And that is, I didn't do what you did. I didn't take several weeks and go camping in the back country after and really celebrate what that was about. I was usually busting out of there to, to head back to school right away. And, um, I did get up into the braids of the wood river system at one point to fish. But, uh, the other, the other regret was not getting out on a fishing boat. Um, until I would, until I turned 44 and uh, filmed the wild. Wow. But um, it's funny you went right into the 16 hour shift thing because that was my very next little braid that was going to go down with you. So this kind of fits into the bigger picture here, but let's just visualize it's hour 14 of a 16 hour shift, and all you want is sweet sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, this, of course, fits into the bigger picture of what you've built with your life here, too, as well. But how do you keep going? Like, how do you, you know, how do you barrel through that, those last two hours to, to keep your head up and to keep going? You don't, you don't have a choice. I don't, I don't think I ever make the choice. Well, I could go to bed or I could clock off because it's a perishable thing. You know, if we were, um, sewing t-shirts or, building something that you can literally set down and walk away from that would be different but that the impetus is from this is a perishable product it has to stay cold it has to we just have to keep going and so you're just part of this process that's that's moving you're just trying to keep up with it you know and and so much of the idea um, or the technicality or whatever of a processing line is that you're being fed by the person doing the job next to you and you're feeding the person on your other side. And so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a, when they're done, I'm done. When they're done, I'm done. If they're waiting for a fish, you know, they're not happy. And if you're waiting for a fish from that guy, you're giving him a hard time only because that's what keeps it going. And it's a tremendous amount of work to do in one day. So you just, you just have a pressure and pressure on you, but you also know we aren't done until that total fish is empty. So it's not really a decision that you make. That fish is what's pushing you. I've seen you do it uh, recently. Um, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit on that concept of perseverance and resilience and go into this. Pretty much everyone who has worked on the fight to protect Bristol Bay can identify with this kind of dogged persistence and boy, the need for resilience too. Um, can you speak to that from what you've observed? Um, why, why do people do it? Why do people 
fight and continue to fight and stay in the game for Bristol Bay, even when the odds have been stacked against us? Well, for one, I think we, we as people, we mirror each other, right? We can't see ourselves all day, but we can see each other around us and what are they doing? And for me as an employer, and I had the same mentality as an employee too, of kind of my, always my, my motto or my mantra was help. If somebody's having a hard time, if they're done before, or if you're done before them, you help. And so it's kind of that thing where you push each other or you, you're not going to be done until they're done. You're done together for one. And you see how hard other people are working. Um, I'm not watching myself all day. I don't, I don't feel like I get tired because I'm motivated by fear. I want to be there. Um, I'm motivated by all kinds of things, not a new kid there who's just working a summer job. Um, but when I see those people working so hard and they're on hour 14, and I know that I could not be doing this without them, I tell them all the time, I couldn't do that. You realize I couldn't do this without you, right? You know, the person putting fish in the bag, the person cleaning guts up off the floor, the person building boxes. Um, so yeah, it's just a mirrored thing where you see what, what you can do together and um, you just tap into that. So it's a momentum. It's something you're all you're all doing together. Boy, the box loft was choice duty. Dry, yeah. warm. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good good break. You could get from... away with a nap if you built yourself a fort or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. There it's uh I can neither confirm or den- deny that there was some uh reefer madness going on up in the box loft at mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah. We so, had our secret um secret nap spots and if you busted someone that was it that was kind of a test of true friendship if you ratted them out where their secret either where you hid your cigarettes or where you were napping that was that was bond you know that was in the vault <laughs> absolutely these trials these trials by fire mm-hmm. or by cold cold water so kind of taken one step further i know you said the um the person next to you motivates you. I certainly being a one small chapter in the big book of, um, the long fight to protect Bristol Bay have been motivated by you. I've been motivated by people like Alana Hurley, people like Rick Halford, mm-hmm. um, people like Melanie Brown, um, people like Nancy Morris Lyon. Um, how have you kept pursuing this this goal of protection for this place and what has sustained you what has fed you during this time knowing that that thing's possible but it's it's been it's been a fight and it's been a grind if there was anywhere else in the world that this was replicated i mean if i could go and work in another fishery that was bristol bay if i could start up a business anywhere else um, and see that sort of abundance, see that sort of hard work, a natural phenomenon, I guess maybe it would just be a dime a dozen, but there's nowhere else that this is going on. I tell the people that work with me, this is a super unique thing. How many people do you know that are 
on the on the first step at the first step of natural resource raw material extraction we have you know people say it all the time we have the equivalent of a gold mine but it's it's the fish and you're not going to see that anywhere else um i'm sure a lot of people work in industries that are just as special to them and just as rewarding and just as amazing um from an abundance standpoint from an industrial standpoint but I know I can't, I can't see this anywhere else. And so what a treasure, you know, I've been up there 18 summers in a row. And that's the one thing I never, ever get uh, tired of or become desensitized to is the first time you see that fish come off of a boat or trip a brailer. And you're just like, damn, that's a lot of fish. And they just keep coming and coming. It's, it's pretty incredible. And it doesn't get old. So, well, you as a business leader and um, person that works their butt off, I've um, seen that happening. And and there's certainly a reality that this is a commodity. This is a product that you're bringing to the world mm-hmm. to feed the world. But you and I have also talked many times about the spiritual power of this place and the fecundity of this place and how unique in all the world that is. Is there a sense of that that you carry with you through the grind of the season, which is a short season, it's only a few weeks long, but do, are you able to dip into that well when, when you're grinding it out? I've probably worked 40 jobs since I was 15 years old. And after two hours, three hours, I'm bored out of my mind. I can't it's, it take, I don't want to look at the clock. It takes me a lot to get through it. Working with fish is completely different. You just, it gives you some sort of energy that's definitely not coming from within. Um, there's no other time of the year that, I mean, it has to do with a lot of things. It's light, you know, broad daylight till 1130 at night. You, you just have a whole different sense of drive. There's just no reason that makes sense to you. Where, where am I getting the perseverance or the energy to, why am I still standing? And I just really think that you draw that, it, that fish exudes so much energy. It's was alive. It still has life to it. So that's there. That's all the way through the processing plan. And even in Montana, when I'm unpackaging fish and thawing them out, cutting them again for smoking, I feel that again. Um, it's just for one, it's working with something that's so beautiful again, that's so perishable. And, um, I, I just think it's a draw. You're getting the energy from that, um, just as much as if not more the pressure, the caffeine, all of that, but this is something different. It's, it's just a different vibe. You also are really meticulous in your work. Um, I've watched it and eaten the fish that you have carefully processed and look it's it's hard work it's hard physical labor and it's you have to be meticulous as well you have to pay attention to detail um you could do anything you want and you've chosen this as a vocation and um as a business leader you've you've really spoken to it but why why alaska why bristol bay and first part and second part 
what does it actually look like in the summertime? If you, you know, for those of us who haven't visited your plant, mm-hmm. um, what is it like on the ground there? And why do you do what you do up there? Oh, gosh, I should have written those down. <laughs> but why Alaska and why Bristol Bay, I think, is just uh, it's opportunity for one. Um, I came from Butte, Montana. It's blue collar, pretty hardworking town, miners. Um, and then there, and there was the diversity. Uh, Butte's known as kind of the melting pot. There are people from everywhere, Italy, Ireland, Poland, um, Chinatown. There's it's a lot of diversity and you wouldn't believe that you're going to find that in a remote village in Alaska, but there's people from all over the world that descend upon that little village and come and they all have somewhat of a shared experience. Um, so that, that part of it, the social part was, was really neat. And then what was your next question? Just to kind of, a or what um, it look like, yeah. What does it look like? If you could just kind of, um, give us a mental image of what is it like on the ground there in your plant? What is, what does the day look like when you get up and, and how do, how does it work? Well, there's a really neat contrast between the industrial, um, the machinery, the can line, the s- smells, the old boats, everything that comes to Naknek goes there to die. There's vehicles on boats and, um, like I said, machinery, buildings, that are dilapidated, but at the same time you have that environment. It's just a really cool contrast between the commercial aspect of it and then and it in the nature. Um, then you see that that phenomenon of the fish come through, and you see the swallows appear, and then you know the kings are going to be there, and you see the tundra cotton appear, and the colors change, and it all happens in the, such a condensed time it's almost like it happens before your your eyes um a lot of the kids that work for me say i feel like i've been here for a month and i just got here three days ago you just it's a total time warp it's con we call it the twilight zone for for in some ways but and there's a real beauty in the industrial type of can the old canneries and stuff like that that we find we love to explore them we love to you know go see what people left behind um a lot of those old canneries that aren't processing anymore you know they could have stopped processing 10 years ago or 40 years ago but you walk into them and if there are any kind of artifacts or remnants of it left there's just this sense of people left for the day and never came back you know they just stopped working and never came back there's sweatshirts on the walls there's hats on nails there's you know writing on the wall from the break room and even though for you know however many years these generations of workers keep coming in from all over the country all over the world it's like it's the same crew oh my gosh they did that back in the 70s you know they they partied there. They wrote their names around. They, you know, it's just it's just so timeless to see that you can really get the essence of people working, doing that same work for summer after summer. And to be part of that, it's like you said earlier, you're just, it's such a relief to feel like you are 
you don't exist anymore because you're part of something so much bigger than you. And you can just not exist for a while. It's really relaxing um, mentally and spiritually. I think there is such a truth in that for fishermen uh, and using that word in ubiquity, um, people that are connected to water and fish, that yearning for nothingness of losing self in, in those moments. Um, I absolutely remember that in, in that hard work and, um, have felt that standing in a river and have felt that, um, on the, you know, on the boat of, um, our buddy, Steve Curian's boat, the Ava Jane, you know, um, yeah. picking fish or, or doing the hydro. Um, speaking of fishermen, what are your relationships like? with the fishermen that you source um, the salmon that you bring to us and feed the world? What does what the workflow look like and what are those relationships like as a working relationship? It's, you know, in a couple words, it's mutually dependent. Um, we rely on each other. Oftentimes the fishermen are the only social contact you get when you make those deliveries. When we go down to pick fish, um, off of the beach or take a delivery from the dock it's just your little time to check in it might be 30 seconds of you know handing fish tickets over the rail or you know sending them down some jerky or something like that but you just it's your it's your time to check in and then from a quality standpoint or from a supplier standpoint the fishermen that we buy the fish from they really get that the fish is going to be going through a different channel it's going to be hand cut that the, the way that they have taken care of it and the effort that they put into the quality, the handling, the icing, the bleeding, that's going to be appreciated on down the line. It's not just going into the bucket with all the other apples. Um, it, it's something that their identity gets to be, tra- be transmitted with that fish to the time it gets eaten or purchased by the consumer. Um, I feel like I'm just the messenger or the delivery person because a lot of times at the farmer's market or at our pickup events, people don't care about me. They care about who who caught this? How did they catch it? Oh, I used to gillnet up there or I fished on the Kenai. They just have this connection to Alaska and they they just are craving to share it. You know, nobody's really jumping to say, oh, I used to butcher fish or work in a, um, a chicken factory or something. They're, they have that connection to the commercial fishing. And if they don't, they've seen it some by some other medium on television, read about it in books. They just want some little piece of it. They want to be closer. And um, they do that through the fishermen. You know, they get it, especially Montanans. They get harvest, they get livestock, they get taking a live living being and turning it into a meal, food. And so there's just a, there's just a great connection. Um, and that starts with the fishermen. I love this idea of continuity that uh, you're suggesting. And I think that um, I didn't understand until we started hanging out that you source your fish 
primarily, if not exclusively, from set netters, which is a different a different kind of gill netting than drift fishermen, drifters. Yeah. Can can you give us the little four one one on that and how how that works and why it works in your operation? Well, set netting uh, is more stationary than the drifters, so they don't really get to go out and search for the fish. They have a site, a designated site, and they are they're screw anchors anchor in the net and they catch what they catch. Um, it's different. A lot of people don't even have to use a boat for the for the set netting they can just waders with the tub and they walk along and they're picking right as as um, the tide's going back out so it's really it can be a lot more people would argue this because every set net site is different but it can it can be a lot more kind of like calm and quiet and closer to the resource versus a fast and furious boat uh, where they're coming over the the rail and um but everybody fishes a different way some sites wouldn't people would never stand for them being uh described as calm because they're not but it's a bit a lot of exposure um you're right out there in the water you're getting splashed with everything and and whether whatever the weather is you're in it you're not going into a wheelhouse um your cabin might be a mile away so in that way, it's pretty neat, but the handling part of it, it's generally smaller volume um, because the fish are going into brailer bags, not into holds. Well, they're both going into brailer bags, but the fishermen that we source from, a lot of times we're right there when they're picking the net, and they're going right into a slush tote, and we're taking them up to the hill to cut them. Slush tote, meaning slush ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the best way that we've seen fish the result of the uh, filleted fish is that as soon as the fish is bled and bled alive you put it in a slush tote of water Mm -hmm. so it can continue to swim and you know get all that blood worked through its system Mm -hmm. and some of these fishermen they're just they just really have the touch they're naturals when you fillet that fish and then put it through the vacuum packer you can the vacuum packer tells no lies. It's going to bring up any blood that was in the bloodline. These things look like little pinholes. They're just cleaned, and hmm. it really, it really makes a difference in the quality. Another part of that is so you're taking fish from the fishermen on the beach in slush ice. It comes to the front of your facility, and you pull it out of the slush ice. And, and then what happens? This is different than a lot of the bigger operations that are up there. How, how is your operation unique in how you process these fish? And what, what ultimately do we end up with at, at the, uh, on the table side of that? So when the fish come out of the tote, what happens is Gary happens. Gary has been working with us for five years. On the winter, in the winter, he does the... Um, cod season out in the Bering Sea on the floating processor. But Gary's our header gutter machine. He breaks all of our hearts because he just every he has pretty much a claw by the end of the season. He just be from reaching for those fish and cutting their heads off. And to watch him do it, I almost get jealous because that's kind of my favorite job. But he he just has such a cool rhythm that those heads are just popping off and 
fallen behind his shoulder into the gut tote. And then he flips him over, runs his knife up the belly, pulls out the guts, passes it to the next person. Um, and then she's taking out the bloodline and sliming and getting it clean and staging it for being split. So filleted, put it, put it to two sides. Um, and it's just incredible because those guys have cut 5,500, 6,000 pounds before lunch sometimes. And you get into the grip to the groove. And if there's no interruptions and everybody's feeling it, we don't even talk to each other for sometimes two or three hours. It's just, we are kind of a little machine, um, fish to fish to fish. And we have these container vans from Alaska Marine Lines that will fill up the totes of fish or the boxes of fish with our, our finished product. And, and especially the first one, when it's full, of course, we call the bobtail and they come and pick it up and take it down to City Dock to put on the barge. And at the beginning, it just looks so daunting because it's this big empty hallway of freezer. And you think, oh God, how are we, how are we going to do that? And at the end, all, all of a sudden, they, everybody looks up and you can hear the semi-truck coming in the driveway and they're like, already? It's full? And I tell them, see that semi-truck? You guys touched every single one of those fish. You did that. And this job isn't cool. It's not pretty. It's not, they're not making a million bucks up there. But I think that's part of their reward is to just see that acknowledgement of the product of their labor like wow we did that it's it's really neat and they gain a, an appreciation for the resource to be honest at the the first year at the cannery i didn't i don't even remember caring or thinking about the fish they were like you know they might as well have been rocks or sweatshirts or you you just saw them in a can going past you so fast and in such huge volume and you know when you're at a cannery nobody really cares to fill you in on what's actually happening um they don't they don't explain okay well here's the process and this is why we do this they say you stand here and do this okay until you hear that buzz and so you really don't make i did not make that connection to the resource or to the raw material. It was a job. I couldn't wait to, for mug up to go and see my friends at break. You made the connections with the people and you made it kind of with yourself because you did it. You did the job and you got the paycheck and it's different. But here I see these uh, people that work with me. A lot of them, they get there. They've never seen a salmon before. By the end, they know who caught that one. Oh, these are Nathan's fish. I love these guys. I love this fish. Or when we do custom processing and somebody didn't take that great a care of their fish, they're so hurt. They're like, why would they do this? Look at this stuff. Why would they do this? You know, if it wasn't bled or it wasn't, you know, kept at temperature because the fish intrinsically come out of that water. They are perfect. They're round. They're like little whales. They're so perfect. And our job, I think, is just to keep that per integrity or um, 
intactness all the way through. Don't don't cause any harm. Just you have a perfect thing. Just get it through the line. But what you can do to fish between the boat and somebody's plate is kind of sad if it's not taken care of really well. And I see that in a lot of big cities and grocery stores. You just see some fish in the case and you're like, what? It's sad because you know what what they could have been. So that's kind of sappy. But I just mean that those the people that work with me, they gain a real appreciation and they notice the differences. They really, they're learning something and they care. I, I love this conversation. Where You really did a great job of fleshing out. I think the question I was trying to get at, which is where do you think that breakthrough happened for you? And where do you think that breakthrough happens for the people that come work for you uh, between this is just a product that I'm earning a paycheck on and having a coffee break every once in a while uh, to, wow, this is, I'm, I'm passing along this uh, incredible resource from this incredible place. Mm-hmm. How does that ha- How did that happen for you? Oh, I think about this a lot, actually. In my paper that I'm writing, I talk a lot about what does process mean and what's that, what's happening in the transformation from, a, like I said, a live creature, live animal, live fish, to the food product. And, um, I, you know, I still ruminate about that a lot. It's hard to put your finger on. I think part of it is that uh, not that energy that's coming from the fish part of it is what you put into the fish there you know people people are standing there for 8 10 12 hours at a time or more your brain goes to some pretty wacky places you know <laughs> i it's happened to me i see it we call it the snap when somebody just they have a mental <laughs> snap and you spend a lot of time thinking and um, you see people crying on the line. You see people laughing hysterically. Part of that is the lack of sleep and sleep deprivation. But, you know, not to sound whatever, but you, when you are so tired, we've talked about this before, I think you get closer to those spiritual realms, if you want to call them that, or you're more easily or you're more susceptible to that because I think your ego is the first one to say, screw this, I'm going to sleep, you know, and you're, but you're still alive and functioning and working. So you just, that part of you is napping and and you get to experience another part. And those are the things that I think that keep people coming back or that make them feel like they've done something pretty different there or maybe something pretty special than your average J-O-B, you know, they're not behind the counter at a grocery store or whatever. And not to say that those aren't really good jobs and people, that's that's not a worthy pursuit. We all know that. It's just to see the product of your labor from the whole fish to the end product. It's just not something you see every day at every job. You're usually doing one little section of that, not the whole thing. And I do try to make sure that, and probably some of my employees would argue with me on this one, but 
I try to make sure that I rotate them and get them out of the cannery or get them off campus for a couple of days, go down to the beach with my brother, see what's happening and um, see where this fish is coming from. Get down to the beach, um, go to the airport and see this fish get loaded onto a plane, go to city dock and see thousands of containers stacked up like giant Legos and get a, just give them a little sense of context of the industry. And, um, especially try to keep an eye out for people that are fading, like not having a good time, not doing a good job, just get them out of here. And they come back with kind of a renewed sense of this is, this is cool. What I'm doing right now might not be that cool, but it's part of a bigger thing that is, it's just important. So. And I don't think it's a stretch at all to say you can touch a spiritual realm with doing these repetitive things. I mean, think of a whirling dervish or praying the rosary or, yeah. um, you know, chant a chant or a mantra. I mean, absolutely. You get your, your physical body repetitively doing something over and over again, and you can free your mind. Um, I remember writing that down when I was 19 years old doing that stuff. It's like, wow, I've never felt more free than I do right now working in this cannery. I want to talk one more little bit about continuity and the fact that you oftentimes are receiving your fish from people that whose ancestors have been there for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Are you cognizant of that when you have those relationships with the indigenous people of Bristol Bay? And um, how does that augment your feeling about this fish and this resource where it's coming from, especially when it's handled by people who have been handling fish like this for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, it never really hit home to me or occurred to me as much as when I spent the winter in Naknek. Um, I stayed up there over the winter and that gave me a whole new lease on life or a whole new appreciation for having fish in your freezer. Um, it was cold. It's desolate. Groceries are expensive. And it's not a novelty. They depend on that fish. We get to pack up our boxes of fish and go home to Montana where there's a Costco three miles away and get whatever fruit we want, get whatever protein we want. It's not so up there. And you just realize it's not um, as much as it's an enjoyable thing, as much as it's a family um, a family tradition, it's a necessity. They need it and they need it on several different levels. They need it for sustenance. They need it economically. Um, but I think we all saw when those that live there were so vocal about the pebble mine, they need it spiritually too. They need it in all senses of the word. And when you take that and put it into a context where in three weeks, more or less, you have to get an entire year's worth of, for me, income, product, um, inventory. For them, it's their, their household economy depends on three weeks. As far as the salmon go, obviously there's other things up there that they can eat but it's just it's pretty neat and I, I've learned that from them a lot um, 
My friend Stevie Anguson and her family have been bringing me fish since the beginning. Um, and they really have appreciated having a place like ours where they can bring it and get it back, vacuum packed, because a lot of times they're doing hundreds of fish from their subnet. And that's a big job to do in your kitchen or in your backyard. Um, it's messy, the cleanup, the bears, the insects. So I really felt valued and appreciated by them. And as much as I value and appreciate them for their support of my business and just their friendship more than anything else, they're a really special way to tap into what that place is all about. And if you're invited or welcomed into their life as a friend or um, a co-worker or anything, it's a real gift. It has been for me. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm going to move into food as activism for a minute here. And so we're kind of moving away from the land and the landscape, the source point. And now um, we're kind of moving back into the lower 48 here with people that are on the ground and want to do the right thing, um, oftentimes don't know how. How can we save what we love by eating it? I think that comes a lot from knowing where it came from, knowing something about where it came from. For me, that's the contrast I see. Now I know so much about where the salmon I eat came from. I ask that question about everything in the grocery store now. Who picked those apples? Who waxed those apples? Who put the sticker on those apples? You know, who vacuum packed that? What kind of machine? Where's that been? Who cut that meat? Um, because now I know somebody did it or something did it. And so if, if there's something special, that's something that's value, valuable and people don't know about it, then they don't know when it's gone either. So I just think that that sharing of you could go back and, you know, things could have gone a different way a long time ago. And Pebble Mine could have gone through and this fishery would be gone. Um, and the people that don't know about it wouldn't care because they didn't know in the first place. There's a lot of those industries that I don't have a grasp of what they were. And why would I? This is, we have an opportunity to change that here or just ensure that people know for a long time where salmon comes from who's handled it, um, and that it's not a given. It's not something to be taken for granted. Um, it could be gone, and that would be a real shame. So I just know there's a, a lot of people who buy our fish that s the first they buy the fish because it's better than what was in the grocery store or they fished in Alaska one time for vacation and they brought some fish home. They haven't had that good of fish since that time. And so it starts out as a quality thing and an, an experiential thing. They had a good experience of it. But then the more we come home and we meet them at our pickup events and we share ways of preparing it, ways of eating it, they bond with it in a, in a more than just a quality. They, they have a connection with where it came from and that connection 
gets cemented when we sell out or when we don't have it or when they ordered their fish two months ago and they're worried that we lost their email. So that, not necessarily fear, but that prospect of like, oh, we, we might not get this or where is this or, oh, I, it's sold out. That's when it clicks that I really want, I really like this and I'd like it to be around for a long time for them. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole, you don't know what you got till it's gone thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for me a little bit about how you distribute your fish and maybe a couple things that pop into your mind about some interactions you've had with people that have made those connections um, in person that, that have perpetuated this story that have made people really care about saving the source point from where these fish come from. Sure. Well, we, we describe our distribution as somewhat of a, a Girl Scout cookie model. So people order in the spring and then they get it a couple of months later. And that is um, really made clear this idea of this is not an this is not an unlimited or infinite source. It's a seasonal thing. So we're only going to get a certain amount, and above and beyond that, we're not sure. So that's kind of been an education point because people are so used to, you know, you don't go to the store and say, "Oh, look, ground beef is in season." You know, that's there all the time. It's a given. We're trying to differentiate by saying this is not a given. It's a special seasonal thing that's going to come once a year. Um, that's That creates some excitement, some community, some sort of rallying around like, oh, did you get your salmon? Do you still have shares left? You know, people are excited, something new. Um, and... The farmer's market has been one of the best venues that we could have ever imagined. Ten years ago, when I started at the Butte Farmer's Market, I just thought, someday I'm going to make it. Someday I'm not going to have to do this anymore. It's just a stepping stone. I don't feel that way anymore. I'm so grateful to have that, not as only a source of revenue and and a place to unload a lot of fish, but you get to make those connections and nothing has taught me more about what this fish has to be um, from a quality standpoint and what people want to know about it than those farmer's markets because you're having an actual exchange during the handoff. You're answering questions. A lot of times you're answering questions and you just have to say, I don't know. And then you think, well, I better figure that out. I better find that out because when you get asked again, you're going to want to know the answer. So it's a real exchange on both sides to see what do people not know about this and what do they want to know. I remember at one farmer's market, Alina and I were at the Bozeman Winter Market, and there was this couple next to us. They're probably in their early 70s. They always brought their dog, and they sell lamb. And every week, you well, every other Saturday, you show up rain or shine, three feet of snow or not, whatever the temperature is in Bozeman, Montana, and you're just like, Ugh, I don't want to do this right now. It's cold. I'm tired. You're hooking up a trailer. You're loading boxes of fish. And then you're totally humbled because you pull into the parking lot with your Starbucks and your snacks and stuff, and you see this little old couple 
haul in their carts in and their crates and you're like, all right, I'll shut up now because <laughs> you know, that guy's been up since three o'clock in the morning doing his bread. And that guy, that lady was making jam all night long. There's all these kind of artisan people bringing their products to market and it's just, it's really neat. But anyway, back to these two people, we loved them and we were always giving them smoked salmon because the guy just loved smoked, loved our smoked salmon. And um, we'd save the skins when we did our sampling. We would save the skins and give them to their dog. And we just lived for those little, you know, they were our friends for no, for that reason. And anyway, sometimes they would bring a carton of eggs. You know, I don't know how to make a long story short, Mark. So just. You're doing great. <laughs> but they would bring a couple cartons of eggs because they had chickens. But their big sign said, you know, Miller's lamb or whatever. And this gal walks up to the table and sees the eggs there. And she says, are those lamb eggs? And I just overheard it because farmer's markets are the people watching Mecca. They're so fun. And we were all just like, what? Did she just say that? And the, the old man was just like, he didn't think he heard her right. And she was like, the are are these lamb eggs? Because the sign said lamb. And so basically the lady was like, get out of here to the, her husband. And she said, oh, no, these are chicken eggs, but we sell lamb too. And explained it to her. But I have 10 stories like that where you just can see there are people that it's not because they're not smart. They just have never been exposed to where food comes from. And I think in the back of her mind, like she thought, she realized, wow, did I just say that? But she didn't know. It was innocent. And so it's like there's an opportunity to teach somebody that, but they just don't know. And um, that's a that's a fantastic example. Uh, couldn't couldn't dream up a better example than that one. And reminds me of my favorite question that I got while I was guiding in Southeast Alaska when um, one of my guests was staring wistfully at the beach and there was a little Sitka blacktail deer on the beach, you know, grazing on grass and said, Oh damn, that's a beautiful sight. How old's that deer going to be when it turns into a moose? Oh, <laughs> yikes. It happens. Yeah. I said two. <laughs> so I would love to hear from you some wisdom about now where you are in your career in this process and this, this beautiful story you just explained to us about illustrating to people in a meaningful experiential way, where their food come from comes from why they should care and why they should care about the source point from where it comes from. Do you think that we can replicate this work that you're doing throughout our bioregion here in salmon nation, which we define as Northern California clear up to, top of Alaska. And if we were able to replicate knowing your food, do you see a way forward that can bring us out of this idea of just pulling food as a um, product out of a plastic receptacle that has no soul, no um, resonance, no chain of custody behind it, no um, continuity that you've talked so beautifully about in this conversation. Can, 
can we change perception of that? Can we replicate the things that you're doing? And would you have advice for other people, small producers, small farmers, people out there that are working to do this kind of work in a meaningful way? And um, what would you do? What would you say to these folks? Well, that's a that's a tough one because I really had I set out to do this. You know, if I was in third period English as a senior in high school and said, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up to Alaska and da 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 da. That's not what happened at all. I mean, that it just happened to me. It the opportunities were there. I kept saying yes and. Like I said, it took on a life of its own. And so I guess to a small producer, I would say as so long as you enjoy it and you have to promise yourself that you enjoy it for real, just keep doing it. And there have been so many times, whether it's been putting out a smoked product or selling to this type of store or selling in this distribution route that I've I just got pissed at myself and said, why do you keep changing up what you're doing? You know, we just decided this is what we're going to do. And now that's out the window. Well, COVID taught us among, you know, amongst other things is that it's really important that you have the ability um, and the the luxury of diversifying what you're doing and um, pivoting when you kind of have that, idea and usually it's not like I wake up in the middle of the night and say oh here's what I'm going to do I'm going to grind the fish that's you know not a perfect square Um, it's out of necessity that that's born and through challenges and through mistakes the best things that we do in our plant or our process are from the times where we royally screwed it up and so just not to be hard on yourself and um you know, be hard on yourself in terms of doing things as best as you can and giving it everything, but but not f- seeing things as a failure, but just as an opportunity to say, well, that we know something, we know that doesn't work. Um, but and as far as the local, you know, the local food or the understanding the source of your food, just think about it. Get closer to it. Ask people questions if you can. Even if it's, even if it's at a grocery store, I tr- am in the habit. It embarrasses people that I'm shopping with of asking the person behind the seafood desk or at a sushi restaurant, "Do you know where your salmon came from, or do you know it's wild?" And I might not learn anything about it. And the, the you know the consumer or the patron, you might learn any not learn anything about it on that side, but you'll certainly learn what they know about it or what they don't know about it. And I just really geek out on that. Now I want to know what people don't know about their food. I think it's such a simple thing, but it's such a profoundly impactful thing Mm -hmm. that you can do. I think a lot too, because now I'm having to wear a marketing hat and figure out like what messages how are people perceiving my business and my product that don't know me or don't know their bristol bay so i start looking at other messages that that are on food and you can just walk through the grocery store 
It's like, what are they trying to sell people? They're trying to sell us responsibility. They're trying to sell us environmental sustainability. They're trying to sell us, you know, being healthy. They're trying to sell us being frugal. They're trying to sell us being practical and beautiful, whatever. It's, they're not selling food as sustenance. They're selling ways that we want to feel about ourselves or ways that we want to be represented to the world, you know, by our choices. And I see that in the, now in the choices that I'm making to try to see through those, through those messages. And I know that when I eat eggs, they came from my mom's chickens and I know not her lambs. Yeah. Every time you can make those choices, do it. And every time you can think to ask a question, just do it because you are learning something, but they're also behind the counter. Maybe that kid will go and ask his boss, like, where does this fish come from? And just encourage the care a little bit. And maybe it falls on deaf ears. I don't know. But I, I think people perk up. I, I mean, I've, I've irritated the guy behind the fish counter many a time. Um, but you know what? They remember. And we come back and have a conversation about that. And sometimes there's something else sitting in the counter the next time I come back. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to start winding her down here. This has been such a great conversation. And I yeah. honestly, we could just keep going for uh, a whole road trip here. But um, for today, I want to just touch on two two more things. The first thing is obviously this year for almost everybody, there has been a lot to persist through. And um, I know uh, we've talked about and have experienced acute experiences of grief during this time. Um, and I know so many other people and other families have as well. What is your role on your, what, what is your take rather on the role of connection, like with a capital C throughout all of this? And what does that mean to you? Well, I guess throughout any trial or out throughout any joy that life brings us, we learn what's important, what's important to us. We learn what really matters and so much of that includes food, you know, so much of gathering, um, gift giving, so much of who we are as people or even as live beings is eating and, and sharing food together. And so I think when people are having hard times or good times and they can celebrate with something special and if I contributed to getting that something special to where they could put it in front of their family. I mean, that's, that's enough for me. That's awesome. I know that people to say they, they save our fish for a special occasion or they gave it as a gift. And just to like play, have played one small part in that is I consider pretty cool. Me too. All right, we have come to that time of the podcast where we're doing our goofy little game of asking you three questions here. It's a speed round. Um, I didn't know about this. Just imagining, you're going to love this. You're just imagining if, if God forbid, um, 
your house caught on fire, your, your plant caught on fire. And, um, I'm knocking on wood as I say that. And, um, you of course get your loved ones out first, but what are, what is the one physical thing you take with you if it was all on the line? Oh, geez. Then I know it would be in like an article of clothing. Some, I have, I have these, uh, they're like jogger pants. People call them my hammer pants. I have literally been wearing them every summer. I wear them all the time. I'd take those. I don't know. They're just your hammer pants. Security. Yeah. My security blanket. No one has answered hammer pants yet. You, you get a gold star. (laughs) Oh, it's awesome. All right. Let's, let's call it your spiritual house now. Um, and, uh, there's, two things you can take with you that are the core qualities of your life. What are those two things? Two qualities? Mm-hmm. About you or those, those things that you hold in highest regard about who you are? Um, definitely humility and resilience. You yeah. exude both of those qualities uh, quite magnificently all right and lastly is there uh anything is there one thing that you would leave behind to to let the fire have its way with and purify my processing plant (laughs) i suppose that's a love-hate relationship i love i yes but Nothing would make me, I don't want to leave it behind. Like everything else has been left behind in Naknek to just be a relic Mm. for all the tears and the laughter and the everything that's gone on there. It would just be so awesome to see it burnt to the ground, you know, become ashes and just not be a, what, uh, um, any waste from it or any material left behind. So maybe that's weird, but it's the truth. It's not actually. I didn't see that coming, but I I like that take a lot, and it makes a lot of sense. It is a sort of a living thing. Yeah. L- last tiny little bonus question before we uh, wrap it up for this time: um, How does becoming Doctor Amanda Vlasheski fit into your broader horizon? I know that someday I'm not going to be able to work like manual labor anymore and I'm not going to want to sit around I guess but at the same time I haven't had time to get to create any sort of a narrative or any sort of discourse from what I've experienced I'm just housing it all you know and I can't wait to get it out um I can't it's just like going to be a conglomeration of all the people watching exercises I've done over the past 20 years. And that's what anthropology is. You know, why are people doing what they're doing? Um, how are we mirrors of each other? And, and yeah, this has been a super awesome field site for that type of research, if you call it. So I hope I get the chance to see it through. You aren't kidding. I mean, you couldn't pluck out a more perfect little microcosm Mm -hmm. of human experience well until i get to call you dr uh amanda (laughs) 
Um, Never cold by what a pleasure uh, spending an hour with you here today. And um, where can folks find your amazing salmon and where can folks follow you on social media? Oh, so we're at Quijack Fish, K-V-I-C-H-A-K Fish. That's the river that um, the Naknek and the Quijack are what are near Bristol um, Naknek, where we are. And the Quijack River feeds Lake Iliamna, so it's it's a Yupik word for great water. And so, yeah, Quijack Fish or ordermycatch.com because Quijack's not that easy to phonetically spell out. We're at ordermycatch.com. Perfect. Well, until next time, happy trails, and we'll get this out. We're going to be listening to this um, in conjunction with a screening of the wild on the, uh, yeah, the 19th. Today's the 19th, so it'll be the 20th of, uh, of March. And thank you so much, and can't wait to see you back up in Bristol Bay. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. We'll talk to you soon. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.